This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Longshot, a production of McClatchy Studios, and iHeartRadio. I'm executive producer Davin Coburn. This is a bonus feature for Return Man, taking you behind the scenes of a reporting process that lasted more than three years. Having listened to the show, audiences will know that we have far more context now for the events of October 20th, 1972. It involves race, the mental state of the person, and a town that was scared to death to say anything. But it's not clear we have actual answers yet about what happened in the Lancaster police station. They say he committed suicide, but they say. As you heard in Part 8, Paula Johnson and her team at Syracuse University's Cold Case Justice Initiative could soon work to change that, bringing legal expertise to the case Brett McCormick and our production team investigated as reporters. Sometimes our training may lead us to find that something raises an issue for us that journalists may not pick up on. At the time of Jim Duncan's death, no outside organizations investigated the shooting, and we initially reached out to Johnson to see if her team at CCJI might have done so more recently. Johnson told us they hadn't, and we did not collaborate with her team on this project. But after reading the few publicly available stories about Duncan's death, Johnson told us she too had many questions, and that her team might now begin looking into it. I had the chance to speak with Johnson at length about how her team of student volunteers approaches these investigations, what could come next in Duncan's case, and that elusive concept of closure. This conversation has been edited for length and clarity. My name is Paula Steve Johnson. I am professor of law at Syracuse University College of Law. 
I am also the director of the Cold Case Justice Initiative at Syracuse University College of Law. Our work is to assist families in seeking information and justice and accountability for racially motivated killings of their loved ones that have not been solved and no one has been held to answer for those crimes. When Jim Duncan died, there were a few stories written in national publications like Jet Magazine and the New York Times, but that was about it. What was your reaction to reading some of those stories? It clearly seems like they raised some questions for you the way they did for us. Yes. I mean, I, having read the Jet Magazine piece, having looked at the New York Times piece, you know, and just having a sense of um, the kinds of suspicions that are raised by this case, you know, there are more areas that we would want to look into, you know, what his experiences were, what his demeanor was at these, you know, relevant times. It was very interesting to see the different accounts about what was going on, you know, for Mr. Duncan with respect to drugs. And that needn't be, you know, really here nor there, as opposed to the most pivotal part of this, and that is when he goes into the police station. I mean, it's really curious to me, for instance, that he walked in there and didn't say anything to anyone. It, it, it just doesn't quite make sense to me. Now, I've got the impression from what I've read that, you know, there were some real issues, racial issues in terms of the police department and the rest of the community. And so whatever has been documented or even those things that have not been documented, but that people would be willing to discuss. I think those things are really critical with respect to the black community and uh, what appeared to be a pretty all white or largely white police force in that community. I mean, I could go on and on about the kinds of things we'd want to know, but that's the sort of thing that we'd want to be able to learn more about. At times in the past, CCJI has collaborated with reporters. How do you think journalists and lawyers approach these sorts of investigations differently? Yeah, one of the things that, you know, we would do as an initial matter is to read everything that we can get our hands on that's available in the public sphere. That includes any reportage that has taken place, you know, print, broadcast, you name it. And we would begin to identify a list of people that may have some knowledge or may have some impressions. We'd want to talk to those people. But beyond that, we would um, look into any kind of documents that may be part of the legal investigation aspect of this. And that sometimes will require um, certainly FOIA request. And, you know, that's something that we would do. Now, you know, we ourselves are not prosecutors. And so... What we try to do is put that information in some kind of report. And if it looks as though there was something, you know, criminal involved, then we present that to the relevant authorities. They may be local prosecutors. They may be federal or state prosecutors, you know, but as attorneys, we kind of speak that language and understand what kinds of things would be important for them to take that and say, maybe we'll convene a grand jury or take this at that point. But it's all about really the comprehensiveness and the thoroughness of following every lead. And, you know, and it's something that I tell the students all the time, and that is don't draw conclusions on things before we get as much information 
as we can. Because something may seem to be insignificant, but we can't declare that it's insignificant unless we have followed it. And only then are we able to dismiss it as something that really may have no bearing on the situation. So as lawyers, then, your team would take on a family member, in this case, a family member of Jim Duncan's, as a client. Is that right? Yeah, generally speaking. Very often what happens is that a family member will contact us or a community member will say it's been however many decades and law enforcement has said one thing, we've never quite believed that, or we think that there is more to be discovered about this. Can you help us? And so we, yes, we take on, you know, that matter and we are doing that on behalf of the families, you know, to try to, you know, help amass as much information and create some sort of case, you know, profile as to what we think has happened. And by definition, your team is looking into cases that are decades old. That means paperwork and other evidence could have been destroyed. Things simply get lost over time. How do you handle that? How does your team make a case out of evidence that may no longer exist? Well, I mean, that's the most difficult thing with cases that are defined as cold cases. When you're talking about something that's 40, 50, or more years old, people have passed away. Documents have been you know, lost just in the process of moving. And so sometimes we really are looking for a needle in a haystack. So that becomes a very difficult task. It's very meticulous to have to go through it. And again, as I say to our students, sometimes you don't even know what you're looking for right? You simply know that you're looking for something that suggests that it is connected to the main inquiry. And so that process can be quite difficult. And even if there might not be a satisfying legal resolution to one of your cases, is it fair to say that family and friends just getting more clarity on what actually happened begins to provide a little bit more closure? Yeah, The word closure in these contexts I find to be a very loaded term because in a number of instances, people will ask us, why are you continuing to look into these cases that are decades old, right? Why don't you, and by you, what is really meant is why don't these families just move on, right? It's been 50 years. Don't stay stuck in the past. And our response to that is to the extent that the families do not have as much information as is possible to obtain about what happened to their loved one, there is no moving on, right? There is no closure because it remains an open wound. Certainly people go on with their lives But it does mean that there is something that has not been determined and they want for there to be something final about it. And that finality is a sense of justice. If someone is responsible for taking someone else's life or for propagating a story that is not accurate, you know, if they are shielding other people who participated and so are responsible. The families deserve to know that. Whole communities deserve to know that. You know, those things were done as messages to entire Black communities. 
And so the closure, so to speak, goes beyond any particular family member, any particular community. This is a demand for justice for the entire American society. We'll be right back after the break. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notify, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When you take on a case... How how long do these investigations take? How much time are you and your students going to be investing in it? Well, you know, the time frames always differ with respect to the cases. And we've been working with some for upwards of, you know, a decade ourselves. I, I really should put it this way. The information is there because there are people who are knowledgeable, right? And so if the people who are knowledgeable would come forward that would make our work exceedingly less difficult. 
But to the extent that that is not availing, we have to try to find it, you know, when we have the wherewithal, the means, the time. So much of this really requires footwork. You can't just do it sitting at a desk and getting to know people, right? Developing a rapport so that they will be willing to speak with you. You know, you don't, you simply don't just go to folks and, and really you know, try to ask them about one of, if not the most harrowing experiences that they have had in their own lives. They've got to spend time with people before they have a reason to trust you. And that's simply the human dimension of it. There has to be empathy and compassion, even as you are trying to gather information. So it's a constant process of visiting and revisiting and going back over territory that you may have covered before to see if it leads you to something else, and when it does, to follow those paths as well. CCJI has a very specific mission. What was the genesis of this program, and why did you feel like these particular kinds of cases were important to be focusing on? When the first Emmett Till Act was passed in 2007, really signed into law in 2008, we began to look into this and my co-director, Janice McDonald, who is now an emerita professor at the College of Law, was uh, in Faraday, Louisiana. And she and a journalist, Stanley Nelson, had struck up a conversation. And he was looking into the death of a man named Frank Morris. Mr. Morris had been killed in December of 1964 when three white men had come to his shop and set it aflame. And it's believed that the people who set his shoe shop aflame were uh, members of the local law enforcement and possibly Klan members as well. So as you know, Professor McDonald and uh, Stanley Morris were discussing this, he mentioned that the family was really interested in getting more information that he, as a journalist, didn't feel that he might be able to provide for them. And would we be willing to, you know, talk to the family and see what we as lawyers might be able to do? And from there, we began to notice that there were other cases that hadn't been solved. And as we began to travel, people began to become aware of the work we were doing. And whenever we would make these trips, you know, invariably people would come to us and say, you know, something suspicious happened about our family member's death. We never accepted what was told to us, you know, the official story. Would you be able to help our family as well? And so that is how it just grew. I mean, it just grew. There are just so many of the instances. And from there, we actually, you know, we created a course looking at you know, racial history, legal analysis, you know, around the work that we were doing. And so the project itself blossomed from that. We'll be back after the break. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notify, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. 
From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every family has skeletons in their closet. Mine certainly does. Ones that go back a hundred years and reach thousands of miles back to our hometown in Sicily. Ever since I can remember, my relatives told the story of my great-great-grandmother who was killed by the mafia. I'm Joe Piazza, and in my new podcast, I'm taking on a generational vendetta, visiting the scene of the crime, confronting mafia experts, tracking down Italian officials, and even consulting mediums to set the record straight on my great-great-grandmother's mysterious disappearance. And in between the fact-finding missions, I'll be drinking a lot of wine and eating all of the pasta. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I've seen that in the past few years, you've taken students to the King Center in Atlanta and other historic locations in the civil rights movement. For your students today... What's their understanding of events that happened 50 or 60 years ago? Yes, we did. Part of the work with the students is that the civil rights era, you know, as we understand that from the, say, you know, mid to late 1950s to the mid-70s with a concentration in the 1960s, is something that this younger generation of students don't know as a, as a firsthand matter and have not generally been taught about it in their secondary or even undergraduate educations. So, so much of what we have done in the course of working on the cases has been also educating our students about this era in American history. I mean, they certainly knew that there's racial discrimination in the United States, but they didn't have the kind of in-depth 
awareness that this was so endemic in American society and what that meant. Some of you may be familiar with the Emmett Till case. Any of you familiar with at least the name Emmett Till in uh, Mississippi in 1955, 14-year-old youth, young person who was... As they were reading through these accounts, sometimes the students would come back to us and say they sometimes couldn't tell whether they were reading something from the present or something back in the 1960s because the stories and the accounts sounded so familiar to something that they heard on the news just days before. It has always been the families who have insisted that the world, that government officials, that the entities and the apparatus of society and law enforcement take notice of these events, that the lives of their loved ones, of their children matter and that they matter in the places where other people's lives matter. And so, you know, this was part of the education for them to understand that to some degree, there was an unbroken chain in these racially motivated killings. So we took the students to Atlanta and to, we've taken them to Mississippi so that they would get a firsthand understanding of what had happened in U.S. history. Now, I think the Atlanta trip that you're also referring to was one in which CCJI and Syracuse University sponsored a retreat for the family members of victims of racially motivated crimes. What you will hear this evening are from several family members who will speak with you briefly about the experiences that they've had in their families. We had a public forum at Ebenezer Baptist Church. And as you know, that was Dr. King's church. So there was a public forum where we talked about the work. We talked about the emotional and you know psychological aspects of racial trauma. We know that this isn't all about law. We know that the family's needs go beyond simply making sure that there is, say, a conviction or that there is even a civil matter that happens in the legal system. We want to recognize that before those needs are met, we can't consider this work to be finished either. But then there was a closed aspect of this that was just for the families to meet and interact with each other. It was emotional for all of us. I will never forget that as the family members went around and they kind of talked about, you know, why they were there and what happened in their own families, you know, what they knew about it and all the questions that remained in the cases. One man stood up and he said, I have always thought that what our family experienced was one of the worst things I had ever heard about, ever known about. And then he said, until, right, until I heard from this other family, right? Because in a sense, they had all been doing this in isolation, but now they were able to connect with each other about something that no one else could really understand. And it was just an incredibly powerful, powerful moment. That retreat was something that really epitomized the enormity of what has taken place 
in this society and how much the families have had to hold throughout the years of longing for justice for their family members. I'm Davin Coburn. Return Man is a production of The Herald, McClatchy Studios, and iHeartRadio. Brett McCormick is the lead reporter, and the show is produced by Matt Walsh, Kara Tabor, Kata Stevens, and Rachel Wise. I'm the executive producer for McClatchy Studios. The executive producer for iHeartRadio is Sean Tytone. For lots more on this story, go to heraldonline.com slash returnman. If you have any additional information about Jim Duncan's life or death, email us at returnman at heraldonline.com. To continue supporting this kind of work, visit heraldonline.com slash podcasts and consider a digital subscription. And for more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.